Well, good morning, North Langley. It looks really full in here today. I love it. It's great to see you all today. My name is Kevin. In case you don't know me, I am a campus pastor here at North Langley, and uh, I hope to be launching our campus. Uh, I hope to be launching our campus uh, this coming fall. And kind of my transition into being a campus pastor, I got to take a sabbatical this last fall. Have any of you ever got to take a sabbatical? Yes. If you have, you know it's amazing. I suggest that you all become pastors and work at amazing churches like North Langley because it was amazing. However, sometimes the Lord takes you places that you weren't planning. And I feel like that this last fall, God caused me to kind of go into a deep dive into like my emotional health. And over the course of my sabbatical, I felt like God brought up a lot of things in my life that I thought I had dealt with. And I was like, I'm past that. And I realized, ooh, I'm actually not past that. And there were a number of things in my life that I thought were kind of like, no big deal. And I realized that they were actually kind of a big deal. And a number of things that I didn't think were any deal at all that I didn't even know were there and God revealed them to me. And so, to be honest, sabbatical was amazing, but it was actually emotionally a lot more painful than I expected. I probably cried more in the last like year than I have in like the rest of my life combined. In fact, uh, my wife Christina said she, I don't know if she learned it during sabbatical, but it's when she told me about it. She said, Kevin, I have to ask you the same question four times before you give me an honest response. I was like, what do you mean? She says, well, I'll say, hey, Kevin, how are you doing? And you will say, fine. And then I know you're not fine. And so I ask you again, I'm like, Kevin, are you really fine? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Everything's good. And then she'll ask me a third time, be like, Kevin, uh, it doesn't seem like you're fine. Are you sure there isn't something you want to say? I'm like, yeah, no, I'm fine. It's all good. Just leave me alone. I'm fine. And then she asked me a fourth time, and she says, Kevin, are you really okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. And like, I, like, honestly, this happened many times. And then I start to cry, and all this stuff comes spewing out of me that I was refusing to acknowledge was there. So why is it that I need to be asked four times before I can give an honest and authentic response? I actually think it's because I have, I have a lot of pride, and I don't like to admit that I'm hurt, or that I'm broken, or that something someone has said or done actually caused me pain. I don't like that other people have that power over me, it feels like. And so I just ignore it, and I say I'm fine. Until Christine asked me four times and I turn into a bawling mess. And so this pride in me actually is what I've been thinking about this last week a lot as, as I've been preparing for this sermon. Because I first read the text for today and I thought, oh, okay, it's about one thing. And then as I started studying it, I realized it's actually about pride. And our text today is going to be about the focus on ourselves and wanting to make ourselves look good, wanting to save face and not have other people see our shortcomings or things that we don't like about ourselves. It's the idea of self-preservation, the idea of self-centeredness and self-interest. And I actually think that this kind of selfish pride harms us because we're afraid to be authentic, we're afraid to be vulnerable, we're afraid to even admit things in our lives that are hurting us. We want to ignore them. 
Now, there are a few different definitions of pride. And so I just kind of want to define what we're talking about today. There's pride where it's like, uh, I'm really proud of my son Liam for this accomplishment that he made. And it's more of like, I'm appreciating and admiring something he did. And it's like, oh, that's good on you, Liam. Okay, that's not the kind of pride that I'm talking about today. Pride can also be used, uh, it's used a lot for like LGBTQ+, and it's uh, uh, used to kind of describe a community, and it's a word that, that has a lot of kind of different meanings to it. That's not the pride that I'm talking about today. I'm actually talking about the pride of comparison, the pride of trying to make yourself look a little bit better by making someone else look a little bit lower, and the pride of saving face by not letting people see the mess or the things that are broken, or our hurt, or our shame. C.S. Lewis said, he said that pride is the essential vice. The utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So C.S. Lewis doesn't like pride. That's what we learned from that one. So our text today is actually a story about a conversation that Jesus has primarily with his disciples. And there are four parts to it, but it's all kind of the same conversation. So it kind of starts one way, kind of meanders around. And so I just, it's important to remember that this is just kind of one dialogue um, in our text today. And I believe that each one of these sections or parts, Jesus is calling out pride in his disciples. So, let's get into it. It's uh, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37. It says, the next day, not just the next day, before that, Jesus, James, John, and Peter were on the mountain for what? What did we talk about last week? Does anyone remember? Start. Spencer, do you remember what a good job Spencer did last week? Talking about what? What did he talk about? Transfiguration! Excellent. Okay, sorry. I didn't think that was going to be a hard question. Sorry, guys. Um, So Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up around the mountain, the transfiguration, this glory-filled moment where Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses, and they hear a voice from God, and it's this beautiful, beautiful incident. So the other nine disciples weren't there. So Jesus, Peter, James, John, they come down the mountain. So that's where we are. Um, A large crowd met them. A man called out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Okay, demon possession. No big deal, right? Um, So I read the scripture. I was like, okay, today we're going to talk about demon possession. Just so you know, it's been a long time since I preached. I told Matthew I'm feeling a little bit rusty. It's, it's been a, like nine months. And so I'm like, he's like, well, jump in with demon possession. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. But I was actually really excited because as I read it, I was like, even though there's a demon possession here, and kind of the fourth part, one, two, three, four, 
there's also a demon possession, I realize that demon possession is more of an illustration than the actual point of our text today. Like I said, I actually think our text today is about pride. And so as I started studying it, the Lord started revealing a lot of pride in my life. And I was like, maybe I should preach about demon possession. That sounds easier. (laughs) But let's look at what's actually happening here. So like I said, Jesus, James, John, and Peter are on the mountain. They experience the transfiguration. They come down, and they're met by the other nine disciples, a crowd, a father, and his son. And Jesus, his response seems harsh, doesn't it? Did anyone else pick up on that? Those are some harsh words. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Oh, and so to be honest, it was actually helpful for me to try and think about who is Jesus actually talking to here? Because the father brings his son to Jesus, and I can't imagine Jesus responding like that to a father bringing his tormented son. And as I studied, I was like, no, he's not talking to the father. A little bit of background. Just a few verses earlier, at the beginning of chapter 9, so our same chapter, but at the beginning, Jesus actually sends out the 12 disciples with the power to cure all disease, to cast out demons, and to proclaim the gospel. So we're talking like 30 verses earlier. They're given power, they're out there, they are doing this, they're curing diseases, they're casting out demons, because that's what they've been told to do. And so they're doing this, and they come along a father, and a father brings the son, and the disciples try and cast out the demon, and it doesn't work. So this is a little bit weird, because they were just told by Jesus to do this exact thing. They try and do that exact thing, and it doesn't work. And so what the disciples do? It actually looks like they do nothing. Because it's not the disciples that bring the boy to Jesus. It's the father The Father brings him. So here's how I actually picture this conversation going. Pretend I'm Jesus just for the now. Um, So so I'm here, and then the the Father brings a son. says he's tormented with a demon, and and, and your disciples couldn't cast him out. So I look at the Father, and I look over here at the disciples, and I look back at the Father and, and his distress and his brokenness with the Son. And I look back at the disciples and I'm like, how long, guys? How long do I have to be walking with you? Like, how long do you need to spend with me to know that you are going to encounter things that you can't do on your own, that in your own strength are beyond you? How long do we need to walk together? It's been three years already. Do you still feel like if you can't do something that it's just finished? Or do you bring it to me? So I believe that Jesus has a very harsh rebuke, not for the Father. I believe he's rebuking the disciples for their pride of just saying, I can't accomplish something. I'm done with it. Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain with Jesus. If I'm one of the nine disciples that didn't get to go, I might be upset. I'm not part of the core. I didn't get to hear God's voice. I'm down here doing the work, walking around, curing diseases, casting out demons, and one came along and it didn't work and whatever, I'm moving on. Because maybe I'm hurt, maybe I'm upset, maybe I'm afraid to tell Jesus I wasn't able to do the very thing that he called me to do. So this father, desperate and helpless, brings his boy to Jesus. And I just think Jesus is like, disciples, how long? You still don't get it. You just don't get it. It's not about you. 
It's not about your strength. It's not about your power. It's not about you doing miracles. It's about me. It's about Jesus. Swallow your pride. Admit your failures and bring them to me. I don't think Jesus is even mad at the disciples for not casting out the demon. I think Jesus is mad at the disciples for not bringing the boy to him and thinking that it was beyond their power, so it must be beyond Jesus' power. Leon Morris says, The disciples' lack of faith, their slowness to learn, their pride and their intolerance, it's an impressive sequence that makes a sad conclusion to this Galilean section. The disciples have much to learn. The disciples appear to be guilty of the pride of self-reliance, thinking that if something doesn't work, you just give up, you don't need to take it to Jesus, it's beyond you. The pride of self-reliance, that I can do it myself, and if I can't do it, it's just not going to get done. Now, this seems crazy to us. It seems crazy to me, because I'm like, well, of course I would bring the boy to Jesus. And then I started thinking about my own life, and how many times do I encounter something that is beyond my capability, and I just quit, or I give up. Or Jesus says, go love that person, and I'm like, that's really hard, Jesus. I'm not going to do that. Go encourage that person. Do this thing, and I'm like, oh, that just seems too hard. I tried, and it didn't work, so okay, I guess I'm done. The thing is, Jesus actually never told me, and he never told you, and I never, he never said that we were supposed to be self-reliant. And that, that can be a hard word for me anyway, that I'm not supposed to be self-reliant. I'm not supposed to do it myself. See, the paradox of the Christian faith is that we actually can't do these things ourselves. If we think we can, we're missing the point of having a Savior, of having Jesus. And so, Jesus is teaching the disciples this over and over again, and I feel like in my life, Jesus has taught me over and over again, and, and sometimes I feel like the Lord calls me to do something, and I quit, or I fail, and I feel like God's up in heaven, and he's like, Kevin! Kind of like the mom from Home Alone, Kevin! And <laughs> looking at me, and just being like, how long, Kevin? Like, I've been walking with Jesus for a lot of my life, and, and how long do I doubt his power? How often do I doubt that he is going to do what he says he's going to do, and I chicken out, and I'm afraid to bring things to him? See, part of the freedom that we have in following Jesus is that we can actually fall apart, be honest about the areas of our life that are broken and a mess, and that he still loves us and accepts us. In fact, that's why he chases after us, because he knows we're broken. And it's a beautiful freedom to be able to admit our brokenness, our sin, our shame, our disappointment, the areas that we just want so badly to cover up and ignore and pretend like they're not there. Jesus actually says, come, bring those things to me. I can do with them what you can't do by yourself. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, we're going to pick it back up in verse 43b. So, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus just did, so again, the big kind of commotion going on, people are cheering, the boy was healed. He said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The ESV uses the phrase that says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. 
So the Son of Man is going to be delivered. In the same scene, just a couple moments earlier, everyone's cheering, everyone's excited. You kind of expect to be this like big climax to the story where like there's a big celebration or a feast. Like this boy that, that has been demon-possessed has been healed, but Jesus takes it in a very different direction. He takes the conversation in a different direction, and it seems strange. David Garland says, This prediction may seem alien to our context, but it serves Luke's theological purpose. Divine majesty will not be met with constant applause from humans, but it will encounter rejection. Many will fail to see that God works an even mightier deed on the cross with Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus is like, okay, guys, disciples, you see kind of everyone being super excited about what's going on right now, and yay, we created a crowd, and people are cheering. This isn't what it really is. This isn't what it's about. It's not about gathering a crowd, making people cheer. It's actually about that following, following God is about submission and sacrifice and that I am going to be handed over. I'm going to be delivered and betrayed into the hands of men. And that is an act of submission and service. See, in this upside-down world, the king dies for the people not people dying for their kings and rulers. Following Jesus means giving up self-preservation, our desire to be safe and comfortable. Jesus here is predicting his death, betrayal, and crucifixion. So, I like to think of the disciples, I find it helpful, to think of the disciples as middle school students. So, if you're hanging out with middle school students and you bring up something really difficult like death and being handed over, a middle school student's response is usually to make a completely inappropriate comment to say, change the subject. And so that's exactly what the disciples do. So it's like, okay, we just had this demon possession. We couldn't do it. Jesus scolded us for it. And now he's telling us that, that being great is actually about submission and service. He's going to be handed over and betrayed. And that's uncomfortable. So an argument in verse 46 started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Okay, yes. I appreciate that you get what's going on here. So we can acknowledge that this is not the disciples' finest hour. They still have a lot to learn, and Jesus is really driving this point home. Um, like I said, he scolded them, he's called them out, and they've literally just failed twice. The irony here, like, I feel like Alanis Morissette's song is just going in my head. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? Yeah, I really do think. Gen Xers, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, forget it. Um, okay, sorry, keep going on. Verse 47. So, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. So the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, it's not you guys. It's not going to be you. Their pride is getting in the way. They still don't understand this upside-down kingdom where the least is greatest and the greatest is least. Now, for us today, I feel like a child is kind of a, a bit of a poor example even because in our society, in our culture, we love to think of kids as like the jewel of our society. Like it's the best thing about us today is our kids, and we love and value our kids so much. But in Jesus' day, in the first century, children were not viewed in the same way. By bringing a child to illustrate this, Jesus is basically saying, the one who is nameless, 
the one who has no voice, the one who is helpless, the ones with no power or status, those who are unimportant in the kingdom of the world are the most important in the kingdom of God. There's something so beautiful about that, isn't it? That reverse idea of kingdom values with what makes sense to us. In the economy of God, the insignificant are so significant, and I just love the beauty of that. John Charles Riley says that of all creatures, none have so little right to be proud as to man. Of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. And so if as Christians we should be the most humble of all, why do we fight so hard to kind of save face and to look good and to act like we have it all figured out and that we have everything together? Why do we come to church on a Sunday and feel like we're all kind of in our Sunday best putting on the face and, and kind of ignoring the hurt and the pain and people might ask you four times and, and you still are fine? See, true greatness is not earthly greatness. It's the opposite. The really great person isn't concerned about their own self-interest. In fact, it might not even be other-centered. It's actually Christ-centered. When we're focused on what Christ is calling us to do, not what kind of comes naturally to us. So maybe, just maybe, when we lay down our pride... Jesus is going to do something powerful and beautiful, and he's going to break those chains and offer hope where it feels hopeless, and he's going to offer identity when we feel worthless, and he's going to bring freedom when we feel bound. Okay, so before we get to our fourth and final part of our text today, just a quick question. Do you think the disciples fare any better in section four than one, two, and three? The answer is no. Yes. Okay. Um, So in verse 49... It says, Master John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus is like, don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. I like to call this guy the stranger exorcist. And the disciples, they actually really want to hold on to that power for themselves. They want to copyright it because they were the ones who were sent out by Jesus to do it. And when they see someone else doing what they just failed to do with the boy, their pride gets in the way. They're jealous. And they're like, he shouldn't be doing that. She's like, well, it's working. Yes. And so laying down pride for the disciples means giving up the exclusivity of being right, of being on the in and other people being on the out. Jesus' response to the disciples is that you actually need to stop hoarding the kingdom of God. It's not yours to hold on to. In fact, it is the responsibility of all Jesus' followers to share the kingdom and to advance the gospel and to tell others about the good news. N.T. Wright says, then the disciples have to learn that God's kingdom may be going forward through people they don't know who aren't a part of their group. Things are not always as straightforward. And this is that backwards, upside down, reverse kingdom. And I love that Jesus, I love the way he says this. He says, whoever is not against you is for you. Because I feel like I hear that the other way. I don't know if it was in a movie or something, but I feel like I've always heard that is, if you're not for me, you're against me. And I think when Jesus says, if someone isn't against you, they're for you, I think that's much more inclusive. I think that's like a much more welcoming stance. I feel like that could be its own sermon. If you're not against me, you are for me. 
And honestly, this is, this is an area where I feel like as, as Christians, we have a Mennonite brethren background, we attend North Langley Church. Like, I feel like a lot of times we can be critical of other churches, of other denominations. But Jesus is saying that if you are on my side, that there is going to be people living that out in slightly different ways. This one for me as a pastor, this exorcist stranger, is actually hard for me as a pastor. Um, because honestly, in my, my ministry over the years, I've seen churches and I've seen pastors that I don't totally agree with do awesome things. And they're doing amazing things. And so do you know what my response is? Well, they're doing it like that, but I don't like the way they do worship. Or, yeah, people are coming to meet Jesus, but yeah, that just seems like a corporation. Or... I don't like their theology. I, couldn't, I can't support everything they do theologically. And I feel like the Lord is saying, Kevin, lay that down. It's time to lay that down. And their theology, their worship, that's between them and Jesus. And I just need to let my pride go when I feel embarrassed or I want what someone else is doing. I want their success. Ah, it's a lot about pride today. Demon possession would have been way easier. Um, <laughs> So let's just kind of summarize what our text is about today, because I believe it's all about laying down our pride. It's about needing to admit that we can't do it all ourselves, that we actually need a Savior who's going to do things that we can't do on our own. It's the pride of when we selfishly look out for our own self-interest, putting ourselves above other, comparing ourselves to other by lifting ourselves up so that other people are below us. And there's a pride of holding on to what isn't mine to hold on to. The pride of sharing what I actually want to keep for myself. I recently ran into a friend, um, and I, I knew her from way back, and she said that it had been a long time since she'd been to church. She used to attend regularly, and uh, there's COVID and life situations, but she was like, yeah, I haven't been to a church in a long time because I feel like my life is just kind of a mess right now. I feel like I've got a lot of mess and a lot of things that are broken, so I just need to clean some of those things up before I come to church. Okay, that is backwards, people. How have we, and I'm using myself in this, created an environment where people feel like they need to clean up their mess before they come back to church? Where they need to do the heavy lifting on their own before coming back into a community. Like, maybe we as, as Christians have done a disservice to the world by making it look like we've got everything figured out. By, by saying we're fine when really we're not fine. By taking things that, that maybe make us feel embarrassed or shamed and covering them up and hiding from them and running away from those things. I wish my friend, when she's feeling broken and a mess, she's thinking, oh, I just have to go back to church because that's where I'm going to be accepted. That's where I'm going to be belong. That's where people are going to walk with me. Like, I feel like sometimes as, as Christians who are part of churches and part of creating church culture, like, sometimes I just feel we need to repent of that, that, Lord, how have we created a community where it seems like you have to be together and have it all figured out to be able to be a part of us when really we're supposed to be a community of sinners of the broken. How do we do that? How do we change that about us, about me personally? 
I want my friend to feel like church is the first place she needs to go when she's a mess, when she's broken. Jesus says, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me, all of you who have figured it out and conquered your own sin and dealt with your own shame. He says, no, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come with your burdens, your brokenness, your disappointments, your failures, and bring them to the cross. And it's okay to admit that we've got a lot of stuff, that we've got a lot of baggage. So right before our text, Jesus' glory is revealed in the transfiguration. He's up there, and it's his glory. And then the disciples kind of maybe get a backwards idea because they're kind of seeking after their own glory. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. But in just a couple of chapters, we're going to see Jesus' full expression of his glory by giving up of himself, by self-sacrificing in order to follow the will of his Father, by going to the cross. And in going to the cross, he takes all that shame and all that brokenness and all that stuff that, like, about us that we just, we want to hide and we want to forget and we want to ignore, and he takes those things and he pays for them on the cross. And that is good news for us, that we don't actually have to figure that out ourselves. We don't have to deal with all that stuff on our own, that Jesus will enter that pain and that brokenness and and walk with us through that. It's not about our own self-focused glory. It's Jesus' self-giving glory. And Jesus wants to share with you, and he wants to walk with you. The glory of Christ is not only that he just accepts us, but that he invites us as broken, frail sinners. A lot of times I think that religion can kind of burden us with rules. Things can feel legalistic, like it's an impossible weight to do everything right. And that we need to get rid of all that stuff before coming to church. Before coming to Jesus, pride tells us, that we need to do the heavy lifting on our own. So there's the pride that kind of speaks of us, of thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, but God's been leading me to think and talk a lot more about the pride that comes around from running around trying to cover things up and saving face. Areas that kind of make my stomach turn. Areas where I feel like I need to confess sin or bring things into the light that maybe I've kept in darkness. I feel like for me, and maybe for you, there are a number of things that I need to share with trusted friends or a pastor or with the prayer team who would love to pray with you. C.S. Lewis, he, he talks about pride and humility, and he says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too. <laughs> At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. And so I think that this is a difficult word for all of us. I think that this is something where we probably all have areas. Maybe you don't. C.S. Lewis would say, well, that means you probably need to look closer. So in case you're like me, I'm going to ask you four times if you're okay. Because for me, it takes four to be able to be truthful and honest. So I'm going to ask you four times if there's something in your life that God wants you to maybe bring into the light something that you want to admit is not okay in you. I'm going to ask you four times. So are you okay? Is God pressing something into your heart that pride has refused to accept as there? 
Is there something that shame is telling you means that you can't approach him? Something that's keeping you from him? Jesus knows it's there, and he's walked that road. He knows what suffering is. He knows what betrayal is. He knows what it's like to experience pain and loneliness. He knows what it's like to experience pain, chronic debilitating pain. He knows what unrelenting emotional pain is. So the question is, are you actually okay? Is there something that feels like a weight that you just don't want to carry anymore? Something that would be so freeing if only you could just give it up and release it to the Lord. Letting go of something maybe that, that you don't love, maybe something that you hate, but that has actually become comfortable and familiar. Something that like, you actually take like, some comfort in hating and a bitterness that maybe you can't imagine not having in your life anymore. The Bible talks a lot about like, making beauty from ashes. About beauty in brokenness. And like I said, the cross of Good Friday is coming. It's, it's just a couple weeks away. And in Good Friday is where Jesus takes all of the stuff, all of the stuff that we can't carry on our own. The things that hurt so bad we don't even want to acknowledge they're there. And he takes them and he dies for them on the cross so that we don't have to walk through them alone. But he is there with us. And then we know the resurrection comes where Jesus offers us new life, where the gospel is kind of at its pinnacle and where we can approach Jesus knowing that he has given us new life and resurrection and those things don't need to hold us back anymore. So I want to ask you again, are you actually okay? Imagine what it would be like to trade sorrow for joy, beauty out of your brokenness. The greatness that we follow Jesus, who is a Messiah, that suffered and that he knows what it's like to suffer. And so we don't need to pretend like we don't suffer. We don't need to pretend like we have it all figured out. Don't let your pride trick you into thinking you don't need Jesus or that there are areas of your life that are too dark to bring forward. Jesus wants to enter into that suffering. You're not alone in that. And one of the things that I love about sharing our suffering is when we share our suffering, it actually often God uses that and brings us into the suffering of other people. And God uses our brokenness to minister to others. And there's something so beautiful in being a wounded healer. It's not our job to heal, but Jesus often uses us and brings us to walk along others. It's the power of Christ that lives in us. Uh, Tim Keller once said that Christianity uniquely offers a non-performative identity, not constantly ebbing and flowing based on accomplishments or conduct. Your faith, Jesus' love for you, does not ebb and flow based on your accomplishments or conduct. So I'm going to ask you again, are you honestly okay? Following Jesus actually means that it's okay to not be okay. It means that we're actually supposed to acknowledge and accept and actually embrace that. The kingdom of God is this upside-down, backwards, beautiful paradox. So I want to just challenge you to bring your pain into the light. The things that we keep secret, Jesus actually wants to meet you in those places. David Garland wrote, he said, uh, Jesus lived in the midst of suffering, yet it did not present itself to him as a problem. He never viewed suffering as anything but great evil, and he devoted a large part of his ministry to its alleviation. But he never stood before suffering, confounded or paralyzed. 
Jesus never stands before it confounded or paralyzed. He lived in unbroken communion, faced all the problems of life from a position of perfect acquaintance because he knew God. He knew God's love gathers into its company all of our suffering, all the suffering of man and the whole of sentient creation. One of my favorite verses is from John 10 where Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Have life and have it in abundance. And part of that is being willing to let go of the parts of our life that just drag us down, that are anchors to our souls. Jesus says that greatness is willing to be the least, coming before Christ and surrendering. Greatness is actually us being a church where people who are a mess feel like they can come and belong. And part of that is just being open and honest with who we are. I'll admit to crying a whole bunch this last year as I've kind of dealt with my pain and feeling like I know what depression is. I have a wife who's sick a lot of the time, and to be honest, that's really hard. And, and I need to acknowledge that and not pretend like everything's okay all the time. There are parts of my life where I've been wounded and disappointed, or sorry, felt like a disappointment to others. And I need to acknowledge that and accept it. I need to take that to Jesus and allow him to deal with it and to do his wonder-working power in that. Because it's by his wounds that we are healed. It's by his wounds that Jesus takes our pride and replaces it with something beautiful. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess our pride. God, there's so many different kinds of pride that that can kind of come and be a poison or a cancer to us. And so, Lord, we want to confess those to you. We acknowledge that we need your help, not to fight against it ourselves, but to bring you into that. To even confess to you things that we don't want to acknowledge, things that we want to keep hidden, even from ourselves. Jesus, I know for me, sometimes it's so hard to to keep remembering this backwards, upside-down, beautiful kingdom. So God, give us eyes to see your kingdom for all its beauty. A kingdom where we can be beautiful in our brokenness. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are a church that sometimes makes people who are a mess feel unwelcome. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the boldness to be honest of our own shortcomings and to not always put up the prideful face of everything being okay. God, help us to be a church where the broken, where sinners, where all are welcomed as they are, just as you welcome us, Jesus. So give us the faith to follow your example of self-giving love. Jesus, thank you so much for showing you, showing us your glory through life-giving, selfless love, the love that you gave us on the cross. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.